Hello, everyone. Welcome back to KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. It's that time of the week. You're listening to the Sports Zoo. My name is Zach Zafrin, joined by my co-host Jacob Nydig, and we have a special guest with us today. So much good stuff happening as the spring sports on the farm competing in the Pac-12 tournaments, national championships, and much, much more. Jacob, why don't you go ahead and let our listeners know, whether they're listening live on 90.1 FM, online at kzsu.stanford.edu, or afterwards on Spotify or Apple Music, who is joining us today? Absolutely, Zach. Thank you for that introduction, and welcome to the show, Daniel Vaughn. You know, normally the sports zoo focused on American sports, specifically Stanford sports. Daniel, a huge fan of those, but his specialty lies in the world's game of soccer, or maybe we should say football. Daniel today going to be giving us a brief rundown of the European Premier League Champions League and what it means to be a soccer fan, not just here in the United States, but here on Stanford's campus. Daniel, before we jump in, go ahead and tell us where you're from, who your sports teams are, and and kind of how you got into being a soccer fan. Yeah, for sure. Thank you guys so much for having me. This should be fun. In terms of my background, uh, I'm a senior from San Antonio, Texas, and so that naturally makes me a Spurs fan. I And for a soccer fan, I became a Manchester City fan. The way I got interested in soccer was pretty interesting. My twin brother initially started playing FIFA when we were in middle school, and he decided to support Manchester United. And so having to kind of keep up that sibling rivalry, I decided to support Manchester City. Absolutely. And, you know, the Spurs being from San Antonio, an interesting spot today. We'll definitely jump over to the NBA lottery, which could change the trajectory of the franchise. But, you know, Man City currently sitting atop the Premier League standings which is organized in a very different way than the average American sport. Do you want to go ahead and walk through, for our fans and listeners that maybe aren't as familiar with how the Premier League is set up, some of the teams that are involved, the difference between ties, wins, and losses, and how relegation works? Yeah, for sure. So the Premier League is the highest league of soccer in England, and it consists of 20 teams. And they play 40 games throughout the course of the season. They play each team twice, once at their home stadium and once away at the other team's stadium. And at the end of the season, the bottom three teams actually go down to the second division. And for each game, if you win, the team gets three points. If you tie, you get one point. And if you lose, you receive zero points. And so we're actually approaching the end of the season now. And the relegation race is starting to heat up. Absolutely. And, and, you know, this is a problem that leagues here in the United States in various sports are trying to face, which is keeping teams at the bottom competitive. We've recently seen the NBA institute the play-in tournament. Zach, what are your thoughts on relegation, whether that model is an effective measure to keep the league competitive from start to finish? I think relegation is maybe the best tool to drive engagement. I mean, too often, time and time again, whether it's the NFL, the NBA, um, some days now, maybe even the NHL, we see this uh, phenomenon of tanking happening. I mean, you're just letting down an entire fan base for one 
two, maybe even many years, uh, all for an uncertain future. Relegation obviously takes that out of the picture. Every game matters, even those supposedly meaningless regular game seasons. I think relegation is a beautiful thing. That being said, um, I think it is very interesting when you consider how lucrative uh, European soccer is. Specifically, you're talking about media deals, you're talking about sponsorships. Daniel, I know you're uh, someone with a, someone of a business aptitude, um, having sat beside you in some classes. Um, taking or asking this as someone who truly has zero understanding, idea, um, not even sure if you do have any idea um, how the business works around like relegation. You know, obviously, if you're in the Premier League, that's where the big bucks are. Um, how do you as a franchise stay afloat if you get relegated? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the main incentive to stay up in the Premier League is the TV rights. It's the TV rights that are much more lucrative in the Premier League than they are in the Championship, which is the second division. And I know, at least for some of the teams that are in the relegation race now, they have a lot of pretty high-profile players. Teams that I'm talking about are Leeds, Leicester, who won the Premier League a couple seasons ago, as well as Everton. And so a lot of these players will want to leave because they want to compete in the most competitive leagues in European football. And so I know a lot of these clubs will be able to stay afloat by selling some of their higher profile players who kind of are of the caliber to play in the most competitive leagues. No, absolutely. And, you know, the team that's leading it, your team, Man City, with five matches to go roughly, currently at 85 points, leading Arsenal, who's at 81 what has Man City done that's allowed them to be at the top of the Premier League thus far? Well, if you rewind to a couple of seasons ago, or not a couple of seasons ago, excuse me, a couple of match weeks ago, Arsenal was actually in the lead. But over the last four match days, Arsenal have lost twice in that period. Once to Brighton and once to another team who's escaping my mind. But Manchester City was just able to stay consistent throughout the course of the season. Uh, one of the main concerns that a lot of people were having with Arsenal was their inexperience. They haven't been in a title race for several seasons, and it turns out that their inconsistency has shown over the last couple of match weeks. Absolutely. A huge factor here now, thinking to the NBA playoffs, looking at the Grizzlies. That's another team where inexperience you know, kind of gets the best of them. What is Man City doing tactically that is allowing them to kind of close that gap and now overtake them. Yeah, so the manager, his name's Pep Guardiola, and his main tactic is he likes to try and create numerical mismatches while attacking, and that's either by overloading the wide areas or by overloading the midfield. And one of the tactics that he likes to employ is by using the fullbacks, which are either the left or right backs who are defenders, and they typically, when the team's attacking uh, the thought, or the traditional thought, is that these players would stay back uh, with trying to defend a counterattack. But Pep employs them to go up the field and overload the midfield, which creates numerical mismatches and numerical advantages for Manchester City, which they can then export, exploit to try and score goals. Absolutely, and one person that's on the receiving of that, Erling Holland, the young 22-year-old Norwegian footballer who's the striker for Man City. He has come really onto the scene, not just because of his goal scoring ability, but because of his physical stature. He's six foot four, which 
I mean, I can't think of another soccer player that has really commanded the pitch the way he has at that height and with that skill. Is he someone that's here to stay, or is he going to be a, a few-year wonder and then recede back into the darkness? Well, as a Manchester City fan, I certainly hope he's here to stay. But as you mentioned, yeah, he's extremely tall, extremely fast. And for somebody his size, he's incredibly coordinated with the ball. And so he's just a, a real pleasure to watch. And I think he really benefits from the quality that Manchester City has around him. Players like Kevin De Bruyne and Jack Grealish, who has played really well this season, have really been able to compliment him because he's a player who's always in the right place at the right time. And if the other players around him were able to find him, he will definitely create the goals. No, absolutely. And so now something that is most unique about soccer, the Champions League, which brings in teams from across every league in Europe. You're looking at some of the teams from Spain and La Liga, Barcelona and Real Madrid. You're bringing in some of the Italian clubs, Inter and AC Milan. The Champions League is winding down now. Zach, what do you think about the way that the Champions League is set up with two legs? You're not playing a best of seven or a winner take all. You're playing aggregate two games, one at each home stadium. Well, I think soccer is one of those sports that is so volatile. I mean, the you know, it's not a high volume scoring situation in basketball where there's just greater opportunity for the better team to run away. Um, in soccer, you know, you could be the underdog, you could be getting dominated in possession for 89 minutes, but hey, in that 90th minute, if you're the underdog, you're, you're getting dominated, you just score a goal. That's what's so beautiful about this sport. Um, I think that that model, though, you know, helps mitigate maybe the um, potential for upsets. It mitigates the ability for those lesser teams to advance. However, obviously, Champions League is already the top of, top of the top. It's the cream of the crop. Um, but it just adds to that excitement. It makes it so, hey, yes, you fell once, but hey, you're not out of the count. Absolutely. And the count is getting tallied as we speak. Four teams left, down to three now as one of the semis was completed. We have the battle for Milan, the derby as it is colloquially called. Inter Milan winning today 1-0 for an aggregate of 3-0 over their rivals, AC Milan. And then we have Daniel's Man City taking on Real Madrid and what's going to be a winner-take-all. It's currently 1-1. One match to be played, 90 minutes to leave it on the pitch. Daniel, what are you expecting? It was the first leg was an extremely close and tense game, and I think that there were just two moments of brilliant brilliance throughout the course of the 90 minutes. One from each of the stars of the two teams, one from Vinicius Jr. on Real Madrid, and one from Kevin De Bruyne on Manchester City. And I'm expecting the second leg to be extremely close and tight as well. Uh, I think it's going to be up to the big-name players to come through when it really matters. And so we'll see which side can deliver. Yeah, and you know, Real Madrid in an interesting spot because they just were finalized as second place in La Liga. Messi leaving FC Barcelona after a ridiculous tenure. But in the last three to five years, FC Barcelona has not been successful. This year, they won... La Liga for the first time in quite a while. New coach, new players in the transfer window. What did 
FC Barcelona do to upset Real Madrid in La Liga? I know for one that the FC Barcelona Youth Academy is very, very good and has been good over the past couple decades. A couple of the, their players in their midfield right now are coming from their youth academy, and so I know they've had a consistent focus on youth development for many years, and so I think that is definitely one of the factors that has gone into their success domestically in recent years. Absolutely. And so kind of circling back a little bit to what soccer means, Zach, when throughout your life have you really been a soccer fan, and when does that really reach a peak? Um, you know, the start of my athletic career, which was obviously so, so illustrated for, you know, our loyal listeners that know, um, I, I run out of breath running up the stairs nowadays, um, <laughs> played AYSO starting kindergarten, played club through fourth grade or rather third grade. Um, and that's about the extent of my soccer prowess, soccer knowledge. You find me playing in charity soccer games nowadays, um, where I'm just quite honestly running around like a chicken with its head cut off, um, However, one can appreciate the game. Do I know what's going on? No, not necessarily. Can I appreciate the and bask in the glory of this beautiful international game? Absolutely. Probably peaked during the World Cup on the tail end of this school year. I think, you know, we talked about it in an earlier Sports Zoo episode. It was just so beautiful to have that TV set up um, and watch with so many people, some who know exactly what's going on, some who have no idea what's going on, but there was just such tenacity, such enthusiasm, such passion as we all watched and really united uh, over this one game with one another. I guess that's the beauty of sport, but soccer itself being so global is what made that so powerful. I know you, Jacob, you, you were helping organize some of those um, World Cup watching parties um, you know, as as a casual viewer, certainly the excitement ebbs and flows, uh, maybe at a trough right now, but perhaps a peak soon. I know Women's World Cup is uh, on the docket. All sorts of good stuff to look forward to. Yeah, no, absolutely. And being from Austin, who just got an MLS expansion team, my interest in soccer has grown tremendously. The stadium is about a 30-minute drive from my house. The ads are everywhere. So I've been able to attend a handful of games and it is definitely interesting because those here in the u.s who follow soccer are some of the most passionate fans daniel included they watch the games religiously often by themselves if they can't find some people to enjoy it with them daniel what needs to happen for soccer to kind of take some of the mainstream attention that's generally given to football and basketball and even baseball here in the united states that's a really good question. I think one of the things that goes into it is this general perception that the MLS teams, the Major League Soccer League here in the United States, is at a subpar level to the European top leagues, which I agree with. It is definitely not at that high of a level, but you have to consider that the Premier League and the La Liga are probably the two most competitive leagues in the entire world. And so to say that they're, that we're not competitive or that the MLS is not competitive against these two leagues is not a shot at the MLS. And I think one of the main reasons why the U.S. audience doesn't really watch the European soccer is because of the time changes and the fact that the games aren't on convenient times. The Premier League games are on like Saturday and Sunday mornings and the Champions League games are like 
usually midday, midweek. And so it's not convenient to many people's schedules. But I think if we can get over this perception that the MLS is not fun to watch and is not a high level or high quality soccer that that it truly is, because I've gotten to go to multiple MLS games with you, Jacob, and I've really enjoyed my time. And as you said, the atmosphere is just electric. And so I think once people go, it's really easy to buy into the the atmospheres that are available here in the United States. No, absolutely. And those games are truly electric, folks. If you have a chance to sit in the general admission supporters, they're cheering, they're dancing, they're waving banners around. It is a fun experience. And that has only been heightened by the signing of some of the best soccer players in our recent decade. Zlatan Ibrahimovic signing here in the MLS. You have other players signing such as Gareth Bale. Messi has been rumored to potentially sign with Inter-Miami. There are high-quality soccer players, celebrities across the world on some of these teams. So even if you're not going for the soccer, just going to check out what these athletes have done in their careers is, is more than worth the money for 90 minutes, in my opinion. Kind of jumping subjects now over to the NBA, not just the finals in each conference, but also the draft lottery. Something of particular relevance, given we have a Warriors fan and a Spurs fan, two teams that are currently watching from Cancun. Zach, we'll start with you. Lottery, obviously not a huge deal, but Victor Wimbayana. Some are calling the greatest prospect in the history of team sports. Do you agree or disagree? Strongly. Strongly. So strongly disagree. Wemby, I know that the the, the Wemby sweepstakes have been, you know, in action for years now, and, and I'm just not a believer. I'm sorry. I, I would love for him to pan out. I want him to pan out. He's exciting to watch. I just do not see him as the future. Daniel, where do you stand on the Wimby sweepstakes? I'm pretty high on him because I think in the NBA draft, you're drafting solely off of potential, and this guy probably has the highest ceiling that we've seen in recent years. Yeah, the the height, the agility, the shooting. Zach, what's not to love? Break it down for us, what you've seen. You know, I just... It's hard because he, he's been a professional for years now, which I think is... Uh, a very important piece. The pros coming from overseas, hit or miss certainly, but the ones that have been in those institutions for many years, namely the name that comes to mind is obviously Luka Doncic. I mean, he came so, so pro-ready. Obviously, the big question mark with Wemby is can he fit into his frame? Can he evolve his game? Can he compete with the competitive, uh, physical nature of the NBA because look obviously he has the skills I believe his stats show that he has the efficiency the length is certainly there the potential off the charts 100% I just feel like we've seen too many of these so-called unicorns the seven foot plus individuals with the ability to handle the ability to shoot and the kryptonite time and time again is the physical element of the NBA play I mean this guy is a wiry frame certainly that's a good thing in certain elements but when you're going against the 250 pound seven footers down in the paint you need to be durable obviously a player comparison that comes to mind is Chet Holmgren I mean the guy didn't even last preseason yeah, I mean, that that is what always seems to be the issue with these 
Yeah, unicorns. The guys that are six foot ten, eleven, seven foot one, two, three, you name it, that can do it all. Victor fits that conventional, unconventional player type. Daniel, do you think injuries could be an issue for him, or would it be something else that could lead to him underperforming expectations? Well, I think he is obviously extremely hyped, so just based on that fact, I think it's going to be hard for him to live up to a lot of people's expectations, because I think with people of his hype, everyone is expecting success right away, and as you see, that's not always the case, especially with someone like Chet. But I think injuries is definitely the primary concern. You have other people who, with long and wiry frames, like Kevin Durant, for example, who has had his injuries, injury issues throughout the course of his career. But I think, as I said, the potential is there, and the offensive capability and the lineups that you can put out on the floor with him out there just gives you so many different options that I think would be devastating for some defenses out there. Absolutely. And so, where would y'all see him matching up on a basketball court? He's seven foot three. He's leading France's top league at twenty two points, eleven rebounds, two and a half assists, and roughly four blocks per game. Is he handling the ball? Is he posting up Draymond Green? What is he doing on the actual court once he makes the jump to the NBA? You know, I, I certainly don't see him. Uh, being plugged into that post position. I don't know. I could see him giving Draymond a few good looks down in the low block. Well, you know, at this stage, I feel like anyone's given Draymond <laughs> good looks. Um, take it from a salty Warriors fan at this point. Um, I, I'd love to see him handle the ball. Look, the NBA at the end of the day is entertainment. This man is the name of the game when it comes to entertainment, especially if the ball is in his hands. I know guys at the top of the league, in the league office, are going to want to be uh having him in a position where he is a ball handler, where he's a playmaker. Um, Whether his coach agrees with that certainly is a question. Just looking at the top um, three teams in the lottery, you have Detroit, Houston, and San Antonio all tied with 14% lottery probability. Um, For his own sake, I would hate to see him in Houston. Oh gosh, too many ball-dominant players in there. The coaches don't know what they're doing. The fans don't know what's going on. That entire organization would ruin this man's career. Um, San Antonio... Could be so interesting. I don't know how many years left Popovich has under his belt. Um, probably limited, um, if not one. <laughs> but um, I think that is a place uh, where he could thrive just because of the discipline. I think this is a guy that needs to understand the discipline necessary to thrive into that superstar role that you know everyone across the globe is anticipating he'll grow into. Absolutely. And, you know, his style of game is one that requires a lot of the ball His usage rate currently in the low 30s, which is similar to that of Devin Booker and Kevin Durant, but that's been an intentional choice. He's really shied away from some of the premier European basketball clubs, instead chosen to kind of assemble his version of the Avengers and create a team where he was the number one guy and could get used to doing that. Daniel, how would he fit in to San Antonio if he were were to join the Spurs? That's an interesting question. We do have a lot of guards and a lot of pretty ball-dominant players. I know Keldon Johnson, over the course of this past season, has really evolved as the leading shot-taker on the team, as well as Devin Vassell coming in there. But I do think he's obviously 
an offensive weapon and provides some shooting that's much needed on on the Spurs. And so I think you could run him in any number of any number of ways including in the pick and roll because uh, he offers the availability to pick and roll as well as pick and pop. So I think that could definitely be be a weapon and something that we didn't really run too much this season because we don't have a very dominant big man. Absolutely and and we haven't even touched on his defensive prowess. He's his block rate higher than NBA defensive player of the year Jaron Jackson. Defensively he will be an absolute menace to any opposing guard, forward or anyone else let me pose a question to each of you is there a scenario where you would take someone else with the number one pick and do you think any other gms are actively considering that possibility we'll throw it over to you first sec well i know at the top of the big boards it's really just victor uh Wembenyama, and scoot henderson some might throw brandon miller in that um you know discussion but it's been Wemby and Scoot as A1 and I'm not even going to say A2 but really just one and two Um, I think Wemby again is and has been in a tier of his own Scoot providing an just freakish athleticism um, that teams obviously like but also again one of those guys who took that G League route has been playing against pros um, you know and, and and has shown that he can excel at a stage like that I'm a guy that as a firm believer in Scoot, just because of the precedent for him to succeed. Um, but no, if you're in the number one position, I really don't see you considering anyone else other than Wemby. Um, you know, if you're drafting number one overall, you're in it for the long haul. You're in it to draft potential. Um, and you don't need these guys to be, you know, all stars from day one. There's great p- potential for both of them too. Um, but sure, maybe Scoot is more of a sure choice. But when you're drafting number one, you're thinking about drafting generational talent that will bring you a dynasty for years down the road. Yeah, I completely agree. I think there's no justification for taking anyone else other than Victor at the first spot. I do love, as you mentioned, the G League route. There's great precedent for individuals to succeed and I do think that getting exposure to playing at the professional level as soon as possible is a great way to kind of measure up physically down the road so in terms of development I think that Scoot again has the precedence to succeed but with Victor he can really do it all and so I'm hoping here shortly that the Spurs will have the first pick yeah and so the lottery uh an event that kind of happens throughout the playoffs Currently giving the Spurs, Pistons, and Houston a 14% chance to get it. Daniel, how are you heading in tonight just emotionally? Well, I'm a little nervous, I'm not going to (laughs) lie. I mean, one can only expect someone with Victor's potential to, to make each team a little nervous. Yeah, a lot is on the line, but we do have a decent core of young people in San Antonio, so not the end of the world if we don't get the first pick, though. My fingers are most definitely crossed. Absolutely. And, you know, some of those guys like Scoot, Brandon Miller, going to be more than capable options. Zach, is there a particular team that you want to get that lottery pick? Um, I would love to see Portland. 
you know, have some great talent, have some, you know, new supporters. Because I'm a big fan of Damian Lillard, born and raised in Oakland, um, you know, as is as a Bay Area resident myself. He's someone I've always looked up to, always admired, always appreciated. But um, right in alignment with that narrative of he can't get any help, it's time for him to leave, especially in a small market like Portland. Perhaps this draft is the key for him to stay. Perhaps this draft is the key for him to go from, you know, one of those uh, guys who never wins a ring into perhaps cementing himself as one of not only a Hall of Famer, but one of the greatest point guards of all time. I think that rings are just so strongly associated with your standing uh, among the all-time greats. Damian Lillard not in that conversation because of the lack of playoff success he has had. Um, Maybe also a byproduct of the small market up there in the Pacific Northwest, but uh, you know, he's a guy I'd love to see benefit at the Portland Trailblazers as a team I'd love to see benefit. No, absolutely, and Damian Lillard is one of those guys that I think really exemplifies what it means to just be a good player without being a winner. Some people, you know, I think before the playoffs, maybe have even argued that he's more valuable to his team than Steph is to the Warriors. Zach, what would you respond to that? More important to his team than Steph over the Warriors. Um, You know, I I think I, I am obligated to say that's not true as a Warriors fan, but... As you can tell, I had to stop and really think about that for a second. Um, I think it, it really does depend. In, in today's day and age, with the today's Warriors team, no, Steph is absolutely more valuable. Um, he is just the living, being, everything for the Warriors. They are not the Warriors without Steph Curry, obviously in a sense of identity, but also just success, the ability to stay afloat. Um, when you think about Damian Lillard, I just don't think the same can be said because their heights of success have not been reached, at least not a comparable sense to the Warriors. You know, certainly there is a huge drop off with the Trailblazers, but this isn't a team that is competing for titles. This isn't a team that goes from national or, or rather NBA champions to a lottery team, you know, with or without Damian. Certainly it goes from a team that is a legitimate um uh, team in the West, a team that's fighting for a playoff spot to a team that, yes, now finds themselves in the lottery, but I just think that those are two drastically different extremes found with Steph Curry. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so, some of those players looking for rings this playoffs are really getting to the point where people are going to start questioning it. Jason Tatum's still quite young, but some of the other guys, Jimmy Buckets, really in a pivotal stage when it comes to getting a ring similarly to Jokic, and if somehow LeBron can add another to his legacy, where are the rest of these playoffs going to go? Daniel, who do you see making it out of these these Western Conference Finals? As much as I'd like to see LeBron advance, I think the Nuggets are going to take home the Western Conference Finals. I think Jokic is such a dynamic player, his ability to pass as well as score— I know he was averaging a triple-double in the previous series against the Suns, I believe. And so he's coming in on great form. And as well, they have Jamal Murray, as well as Aaron Gordon and Michael Porter Jr. So they have great supporting cast there in Denver. So I believe that they're going to take it home. Oh, man. Uh, As a salty Warriors fan, obviously you want the Lakers to go down. And 
I just find myself never, never, ever believing in the Nuggets in the playoffs. I think I can point to recent years because of that, but it's tough. They just beat Kevin Durant, Chris Paul, and Devin Booker, and DeAndre Ayton. They have just found themselves in the conference finals in dominant fashion, yet I still feel uncertain and uneasy about the Nuggets in the playoffs. I'm all about narrative. I would love, as much as I honestly dislike LeBron James, I'd love for him to go out there, get himself into the title, and hey, LeBron versus Jason Tatum in the finals, kind of a mentor-mentee matchup would be so exciting to watch. That being said, oh man, I'm rooting for the Heat, man. Jimmy Butler, we've talked about him on this show. He is a man possessed in the playoffs. The Celtics are coming in. The Buckets are full of water. We're extinguishing the fire. No more heat. No more Jimmy Buckets. The game is done. Celtics in six. I'm saying right now, the Heat are not deep enough to match up with the Celtics. Well, hey, you know, the Sixers were five minutes away from being too much for the Celtics. That was not a deep team. Um Celtics. I'm not going to call them lucky because you know what? They really did fight. Uh, I don't know if they beat the Sixers or the Sixers lost, you know, but uh, I think that there's real potential for this matchup to be good. I could also definitely see it being lopsided. Um, I'm just a huge Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown hater. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. I think the Heat will take it in seven. You don't need depth. The Heat will take it in seven. Wow. When you have Jimmy Buckets. I saw him put up 56 in the last series, and as you said, he's a man possessed sometimes, and I think if he can bring that out, no one's going to stop him. The thing is, I feel like if Jimmy gets his 35-40 point per game average, I don't know if the Heat can overcome the rest of the Celtics still. The Knicks are a group of absolute bums. Jalen Brunson, Julius Randle, I feel like I could have found five people on this campus to beat the Knicks in four games, much less use as many as they did. They don't know what is coming down the the barrel. Coming off the bench, Malcolm Brogdon, wow, that's a beast. Who is going to guard Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum and Al Horford? I mean, we can go through the roster, but I just like this matchup as a Celtics fan, and I'm, I'm here to talk about it for every show we have until this series is wrapped up. Well, I think, you know, Bam Adebayo, quite honestly, has been pretty underwhelming this playoffs. But if he steps up to the plate, the Celtics really could be in trouble, especially if their outside shot isn't falling like we saw at some points uh, happening against the Sixers. Yeah, I know. Bam, definitely an intriguing player. I, I think he is someone that could be kind of a pivotal player. I'm also thinking not just him, but that matchup that he'll have with likely Al Horford will be one that it, it will be very intriguing to see who's up for the task to block shots, to knock down their open jumpers, and to rebound. So ultimately, if we as a group had to decide who's going to be in the finals, I mean, is the most plausible answer a Nuggets versus Celtics matchup? I think so. I think, I think the likelihood would probably be, I think the Nuggets are the most set out of the four teams, they've just been so dominant. And then I think probably I would go with Celtics Heat is is maybe I put it at a 60-40. So I'd say the Lakers have the worst chance. But I just there is something unique about both the Lakers and the Heat seemingly just willing themselves to victory even 
in the most unique ways behind some of the most unique players the next Lonnie Walker could come out of either one of those teams and and that is dangerous for any opponent gosh Lonnie Walker my new least favorite <laughs> yeah. <NBA> player <laughs> former spur former spur yeah fun fact many people don't know I saw that Steph signed one of his jerseys at the end and and all of it was very nice very respectful and then on the very bottom he put I'll never forgive you for your performance in game five or game four whichever one where he came out of nowhere Steph made sure that on the back of the jersey he let him know a little something something about it Steph if you're listening that makes two of us I will never forgive Lonnie Walker oh my gosh um, so Nuggets Celtics you know Jokic versus Tatum um, Jamal Murray versus Jalen Brown who do you guys have walking away with that one because you know I just uh, don't see the Nuggets succeeding at all as a certified Nuggets hater. I think Jokic is the X Factor. He's been playing so well, and his ability to get his teammates involved is unparalleled for somebody in his position. And I think while his defense is definitely subpar, he more than makes up for it on the offensive end. Yeah, I. this is a, such an intriguing matchup. I am also a Jokic hater. I just... His style of play is just so discombobulated to me. The way he runs, passes the ball, and shoots just makes me want to turn off the TV. <laughs> so I'm a certified hater of the Nuggets, especially whenever they're playing the Celtics. But this matchup, I think, could really go either way because of how the different teams match up. Looking at some of the players on the Nuggets, their length is really just ridiculous in my mind. Jokic, obviously someone we've talked about a lot, but Contavious Caldwell Pope, someone that matches up great. Aaron Gordon, DeAndre Jordan, someone who barely plays but gets a lot of time. Michael Porter Jr. He, These are all players that can guard one through five with their height and length, and, and that's a huge matchup problem for any team, but especially for the Celtics who really pry on that themselves Jalen Brown Jason Tatum Marcus Smart those are guys that can switch and guard anyone so this matchup I think is much more balanced than any of the other ones and I think the Nuggets depending on how much rest they have could definitely pull this one out wow a Celtics fan saying that the Nuggets pulled this one no, out. could could pull <laughs> this one out could pull this one out I, I think the Celtics have a great shot. I think that's a series that will will go six or seven games, but there's something about the Nuggets that I think matchup-wise against the Celtics gives them a much greater advantage than a lot of the other teams that the Celtics have faced in the East so far. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, the the ability for either Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown to go off in any game is always there. So I think this series is going to be or this hypothetical series would be extremely, extremely electric. But again, I just think Jokic, the fact that the ball is in his hands almost every possession, and he is just has the creativity to get his teammates involved. And again, the players on the Nuggets have not, like especially I'm thinking Aaron Gordon and Michael Porter Jr., have not shot the ball well, incredibly well so far this playoffs. But I think... If those players can get it going as well, Jokic will definitely be able to get them involved. And that, for me, is a signal of success. 
on the legacy standpoint, I feel like what's at stake here certainly is Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown entering their second consecutive finals, and they are on career. If they win, you know, cement themselves, or no, rather not cement themselves, but put them on the trajectory towards what many of the greats did, getting a ring at age 25, getting a ring by age 27, starting what it seems like a string of great years to come. But if they lose beginning that career, 0-2, obviously not a good luck, hard to come back from, even if they find themselves in a similar situation. And on the other end, Jokic, already two back two MVPs back-to-back from two and three years ago, um, could have been a third one this year yet has yet to find that playoff success until now what do you think is the more compelling um story here and and what 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 is uh at i guess more at stake in terms of legacy between these two teams i think the celtics definitely have more at stake they have kind of shown an inability to make the final push across the finish line they lose in the Eastern Conference Finals two of the last three years. They lose in the finals in the other year. This is could be the fourth year they're a series or win or two away from a championship. And whenever you're this close, I think the narrative starts to build that you can't finish. You don't have that extra bit of juice required in the playoffs. And given that this could be the fourth year being that close, I think they have the greatest risk because they're going to end the season once again wondering what else do we have to do to win a championship yeah I agree I think so alluding back to what Zach mentioned earlier in the talk was that a lot of legacies are hinged on how many rings you can win and so people won't remember the fact that they made it to the finals or made it to the Eastern Conference Finals in back-to-back years they're only going to remember if they won a ring or not and so we can discuss the validity of of judging people on 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 how many rings they they win but i think at the end of the day that's how they're going to be judged and so it's a lot on the on the line for the celtics you know i would maybe argue the opposite here rather than i guess what's on the line you know what the upside is the Celtics are so storied, but the Nuggets, not only have they never won an NBA championship, they have never in their franchise history won a conference championship. You know, they're already there. They have only made it this far three times in their entire franchise history. Lost in 1978, 2009, and 2020. You know, I think that this is somewhat of a in the grand scheme of things, a David versus Goliath story. Um, to bring that first title to Denver, a city that has, you know, had not that much success in the entire basketball landscape, that could be huge. Yeah, no, it does kind of beg a question, though, of what Jokic's legacy will be. Obviously, this year he almost averaged, you know, a triple double doesn't win MVP MVP the last two years his contract which he signed in 2018 I believe he's getting around 30 million a year it's like five for 150 somewhere around that range and yeah he's kind of avoided the talk of what where's the winning especially with you know Jamal Murray Aaron Gordon Michael Porter Jr it would be 
much bigger for this organization if he were to win. But on the flip side of that, at some point, those questions have to start following him, given how great his individual performance would be. And and they just have not been able to kind of make the jump from great individual players and postseason appearing teams to regularly being in the Western Conference Finals or the actual finals themselves. With that note, let's go ahead and jump in our last 15 minutes here on the Sports Zoo into Stanford Sports. And, you know, we've spent the first 45 or so talking about soccer and now basketball, but what a time on the farm just a quick station identification. My name is Jacob Nidig. You're live listening here. KZSU 90.1 FM joined on the sports with my weekly co-host Zach Safran and our special guest star, the European soccer man, Daniel the Goat Vaughn. We're coming into one of the greatest times and the finishes of the sporting year for many Stanford teams. Why don't we just do a quick run through of some of the highlights here on the farm and then we can jump in to two teams preparing for their postseason runs, which are baseball and softball. So kind of starting out, I think the first shout out has to go to the women's water polo team. Back to back national championship. That is, you know, it, it feels normal here on the farm, but what an electric performance they had beating our Pac-12 rival UC- USC and UCLA in the NCAA tournament, back-to-back champions. There's not much else you can say about that. No, I mean, and, and, and they just get it done. They have been so good from the get-go. They continue to just win time and time again. You want to know a crazy, crazy statistic, Jacob and Daniel? Hit me. Stanford, in every single women's water polo national championship dating back to 2010. Is that not unreal? I mean, this is a dynasty. Oh, you know what? 2021, that was the, that was not the case. But COVID, asterisks, asterisks on that one. There was COVID. For sure. Um, just unreal. This is a program that should be talked about more because it's one of those teams that just is elite in every aspect possible. They get the elite recruits. They get the elite players. They get the elite performances and obviously just produce at the highest level an 11-9 victory over USC. That has got to feel good. No, absolutely. And the first time they've repeated since 2014, 2015, they've now won national championships in 2012, 2014, 2015, 2017, 2019, and now the past two years. That's a team that you know, has really been led by a group of people from that are now going to be graduating that have kind of set the foundation of what it means to be a Stanford water polo athlete. There's a lot of underclassmen that are, are playing a lot of great minutes, but the senior class has really done it. Katie Lyons, Hannah Costanzi, Sophie Wallace, Aria Fisher, some of those seniors that, that have created a culture around the program that has set them up for these two championships and so looking around the farm in other sports a sport and an individual that just deserves to be talked about time and time again rose zhang with the women's golf team how about this in her 19th 
career event. She won the 11th time and a school record 7th this season. How are you going to win a golf title in 11 of your 19 events? I mean, you're facing an entire crowd. That is just unreal. The number one amateur in the world for a reason as the team advances to the NCAA championships. No, and the thing is, she's not just competing individually, but there are golfers behind her that are putting up crazy numbers. Rosang, 19 under, but junior teammate Sadie Engelman, also from Austin, Texas, shout out Westlake High School in West Austin, shot 15 under. She took second place, and that's without former individual national champion, whose name I am, Rachel Heck, did not even compete because of injury. The Stanford women's golf team is stacked top to bottom. And so this is a team that has a chance to not just have an individual champion in Rose Zang or, or maybe even Sadie Engelman, but a team championship one through five. And so another sport that deserves the shout out, it was Pac-12 title weekend and women's rowing took care of business for the second year in a row they're winning the 2023 pac-12 women's rowing championship winning by three and a half points more than they did last year love to see it a program that you know across campus you run into rowers just in every corner every place there's like a million of them (laughs) i swear so that has got to feel good to have that many pac-12 champions run around this campus yeah and and from a few friends i know their eyes are also set on a little bit more They've lost the last two national championship regattas to the University of Texas at Austin. And so that is a team that they've had their eye on the entire year, trying not just to win the Pac-12 championship, but outpacing some of what's now been a really fun rivalry in the sport of rowing across two conferences, competing with the best of not just the Pac-12, but now the Big 12, as UT Austin has sent really competitive teams to the national championships and slightly edged Stanford in recent years. Yeah, I mean, not even rowing, but you talk about the Director's Cup, uh, Texas taking grasp of that in the last two years after Stanford had that 25-year streak. You know that this rowing team is, is not only helping you know take the crown back, but also there's got to be a little uh, personal stake in that one. Yep, and so finally, before we head over to baseball and softball, I want to give a huge shout-out to a few athletes on the track and field team. Namely, I'm thinking of freshman Juliet Whitaker. She won the women's 800 meters as a freshman. Absolutely ridiculous. Sophomore Yudoti Curry topped the men's 200 meters. And we also had champions in the men's triple jump. And we had someone win in the women's long jump. So, a lot of jumpers on the Stanford track and field team getting it done at the Pac-12 championship. And so not only are they being awarded on the track and field, but as you mentioned, the baseball diamond, um, a huge reason for their success, which we're about to jump into, is because of Junior Alberto Rios. I mean, what a season he's had, and quite frankly, what a week he just had. He went 10 for 18 with seven runs, scored two doubles, four homers, and 11 RBIs last week and as Stanford got a second straight Pac-12 championship. I mean, Rios, there was one monster game uh, in which it was just unreal. And so this Stanford baseball team, you know, closing out a regular season uh, that hopefully will set them on the course for a successful trip out in Omaha. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about Rios 
a little bit in the past. Even last week we mentioned him, but we had no clue what was coming. Daniel, what is going on in the bat of Albert Alberto Rios? And do we need to call NCA compliance officials and, and get him checked out, or what? is going on whenever he's in the batter's box. No, I, I think we might need to get him checked out because he's. I'm looking at the stats here and he's hitting just over 400 after this weekend. And the the recipe for success for Stanford this season has definitely been the offense. We have hitters all throughout the lineup. Just looking at the stats, our nine-hole hitter is Owen Cobb playing the shortstop. He's hitting 337. So that just gives you kind of an idea of how elite our hitters are. And so... Definitely fun to watch. The game this past Sunday was our only loss of the season, or series, excuse me. We lost 20-21. to 21. Yes, that's a baseball score, 20-21. Yeah. to 21. <laughs> So just absolutely electric in terms of offense. Yeah, and I mean, we're leading the Pac-12 with eight home runs, or I should say by eight home runs, which is, you know, somewhat crazy. We're also near the top in average, currently second behind Arizona is this team destined for postseason success? That's a question we tried to answer. And I think this weekend really highlighted that pitching is not going to be the strong suit. Once again, it's coming down to the lineup to put up 8, 9, 19 runs, however many it takes. Zach, last weekend we touched on you know whether we could get quality starts out of Matt Scott. The freshman righty has really struggled as of late. This weekend, what did you see from him? And is there reason for Cardinal fans to be a little bit more optimistic or pessimistic heading into the beginning of postseason play? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, what comes to mind with this Stanford baseball team is, like Daniel said, the offense. I mean, just unreal, but a little bit of concern, certainly. I mean, Scott playing in that Arizona game where we lost 20-21 to and he goes in there, gives up two earned runs in two innings. I don't know if I can say that you know we feel great. Obviously, that loss is not on him. Two earned runs is nothing in the grand scheme of things. He doesn't even come away with a loss. Um, but the question does remain, who is number two behind Quinn Matthews? That is certainly what may be the kryptonite of this team and and, and ultimately the cause for its demise Um, we spoke about how we can use the remainder of the season to find that rhythm find that groove and I just don't know if that's going to be found the way things have been going and with the way time is running out yeah I mean the coaching staff finally deciding to make a change Matt Scott no longer getting the start on Saturday it actually went to junior Joey Dixon who he went six and a third innings gave up one run on four hits with two walks, and he struck out two. Daniel, could Joey Dixon fill in late in the season and be that number two guy for the Cardinal? Yeah, I hope so. He looked good this past weekend. And again, we're going to definitely need some support out of the bullpen for some people to give us some innings out of the bullpen. I think Brant Panzer is a name that comes to mind, as well as Drew Dowd has been shifted back from a starter. I know he has started some games in the past, and he's now kind of a long relief guy out of the bullpen. So I think these two names out of the bullpen are are two people to keep in mind because as we've noticed throughout the course of the season, in some cases our starters don't often make it too long into the game. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, Ryan Bruno, another person we've talked about that has really been trending up, 
he took the loss in that final Sunday game. He gave up a three-run go-ahead homer in the top of the 10th inning. So another player, or a pitcher, I should say, to to keep our eyes on it. Feels like we don't have as any more certainty heading in. What what can Cardinal fans kind of hone in on in this last series against Washington State? I think it'll be interesting to see how the pitching does. I think, again, there's going to be no questions that we're going to be able to put up a lot of runs on Washington State, just as we've been able to put up a lot of runs on just about anybody in the Pac-12. I know... It'll be interesting to see how Joey Dixon starts again, given that he's been just now recently moved into the starting role. But again, it's all on the pitching here. Hopefully the pitching can give us some exciting signs headed into the Pac-12 tournament. Absolutely. And one team, their counterparts on the softball diamond, recently awarded the ninth overall seed. We're hosting a regional here on the farm for the first time since 2011. This is a team that went 40-13 and and is now going to be the sole host of the double elimination this weekend. Florida, Loyola, Marymount, and Long Beach State all coming into town. The Cardinal open up against Long Beach State on Friday at 6 o'clock here. So go check it out, make some noise, and support the softball team as they try to make it to another Super Regional appearance. I think that's all we have left for today. A huge shout-out to Daniel for coming on. Zach, close us out. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM for your weekly rendition of the Sports Zoo. My name is Zach Zaffron, joined today by my co-host Jacob Nidig and our special guest, Daniel Vaughn. Until next week, stay late, wear red, go Cards.